The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. Futures right now pointing towards a higher open following Wall Street's best week since November. Red light. Shares of Hyundai and Kia dropping in Asia today after the automakers say they are not in talks with Apple to develop a car. South Africa will stop using the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine after a trial showed it was not effective in preventing a variant of the virus. And Dogecoin, yes, we're still talking about it, it's soaring, following another Elon Musk tweet about the cryptocurrency. And congratulations to the Super Bowl champions, Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Bucks defeating the Kansas City Chiefs 31-9. We'll call it Champa Bay today. It's Monday, February 8th, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning and welcome to the show. I am Dominic Chewin for Brian Sullivan today. History in Tampa Bay playing out last night. Tom Brady leading the Bucks to the Super Bowl at age 43 breaking his own record to win his seventh Super Bowl ring, and it's his 10th Super Bowl appearance. This was Tampa Bay's first championship since back in 2003. Brady, of course, was named the game's MVP for the fifth time in his career. That's also, yes, another record. He is the greatest of all time. We'll have more on the big game a little bit later on this hour and also talk about some of the big issues some sports betting sites had during the game and just ahead of it. Now to the markets where futures are pointing towards a higher open. You can see the Dow implied higher by roughly 115 points. The Nasdaq a higher by just about 53 points. And the S&P implied higher by roughly 12 points. This is about the middle of the range overnight for these futures markets. Now, the S&P, the Nasdaq and the Russell 2000 small cap index all posted record highs on Friday. The Dow and the S&P are now on their longest winning streaks since all the way back in August. So you can see there a big move higher just over the last year for these major indices, especially that Russell 2000 small cap index playing catch up. On the Treasury yield side, we're seeing a slight move in yields. You can see here with the 10-year, tre- 10-year government note yield, 1.19%. And we actually ticked a hair above 2% earlier in the session for the 30-year Treasury long bond. The two-year note yield dropping just a hair to 0.105% or roughly 10.5 basis points. To the overseas trade now, where we're seeing quite a bit of green. The Asia side of things, you can see there the Nikkei closing higher by 2%, the Hang Seng in Hong Kong, one-tenth of 1% gains, and the Shanghai Composite, 1% gains there, and the South Korean Kospi down 1%. We told you about those Hyundai and Kia headlines with regard to Apple and its self-driving cars. Also take a look at what's happening in Europe. That trading there is happening right now, and Juliana Talabalm is standing live in our London newsroom with the latest there. And Juliana, I can sense that it's very green there as well. 
That's right, Dom. Here in Europe, we are following Asia and trading higher this morning, extending last week's gain. So the main benchmark, the stock 600, currently up about four-tenths of a percentage point. This adds to last week's gains when the stock 600 rose three and a half percent. So alongside that bumper week you saw on Wall Street, we also saw investors put more money to work here in Europe. Now, this morning, we are seeing outperformance of Italian assets, the Italian banks in particular, on hopes that a Mario Draghi-led Italian government will potentially spur economic growth and provide a more supportive environment for M&A, especially in the banking sector. And investors seem to be looking through that data out over the weekend from AstraZeneca, causing some concern around the vaccine's efficacy against the South Africa variant. I know you're going to go into that in a bit more detail on your show, but I want to just give you a look at the sectors. And you can see for yourself, we are seeing a strong bid in cyclical stocks, as well as technology. The tech sector up 0.8% being lifted, in particular by Dialog shares. The semiconductor company uh, is, has risen substantially this morning, about 17% at the open after the board agreed to a near 6 billion euro takeover uh, from its Japanese rival, Renaissance. So a lot of action in the chip space, and uh, that is lifting the broader technology sector. So overall, green for European equities this morning. Dom? Juliana Tettelbaum, live and alone with the latest there. Thank you very much. In corporate news, Hyundai and Kia say that they are not in talks with Apple to develop a car. The company is making the comments and regulatory filings today following media reports that the U.S. tech giant was looking to the South Korean automakers to develop a self-driving car. Hyundai and Kia say they're getting requests from multiple companies to work on autonomous electric vehicles, but nothing has yet been decided. Both stocks, as you can see, they're down sharply in the Korean trade. Hyundai and Kia, who are, by the way, affiliated companies. Hyundai down 6% in the Korean trade. Kia Motors down about 15%. Now, in deal news this morning, Renesis Electronics is buying Apple supplier Dialog Semiconductor for $5.9 billion in a cash deal. That is a 20% premium to Friday's closing price and a 52% premium to a weighted average three-month price. Dialog Semi, you can see in German trading, up about 16.5%. Hedge fund Elliott Management is reportedly looking to raise more than $1 billion for a SPAC. The Wall Street Journal says the process is in an early stage, but the firm has been meeting with bankers about the development of a special purpose acquisition company or blank check acquisition company. Back to the markets now. After last week's bounce, the S&P 500, Nasdaq and Russell 2000 small cap index are at record highs. And the Dow is less than a half a percent away from its own all-time high. But your next guest says there are still some warning flags underneath all of the positive sentiment out there. Gina Sanchez is the CEO of Chantico Global. She's also, of course, a CNBC contributor. Good morning, Gina. Thank you for joining us. What exactly is worrying you about these markets right now? It seems as though it's the only thing that's been happening. Markets keep going higher and higher and higher over the course of the last almost year now. Well, thanks for having me, Dom. And, you know, I agree. We have seen tremendous performance out of the markets. And when you think about sort of what is the psychology that's pushing this, generally it's the idea that this was never going to be a permanent situation, um, that the pandemic would be a short-term or possibly um, medium-term event, and you would eventually sort of get to the other side and have a recovery. That recovery is not only priced in, Dom, but actually we've seen continued margin, I'm sorry, we've seen continued um, multiple expansion, even considering 
um, where we were in earnings at the beginning of the year. And even though we've had spectacular earnings, we still haven't caught up. Um, and the economic recovery doesn't quite catch us up either. Um, and, and I think that, that the markets have just are, are well beyond their skis at this point, priced into perfection. So far, the vaccine recovery hasn't gone, uh, the, the vaccine rollout hasn't gone well. And there are still a lot of questions sort of left hanging over the market, but the market doesn't seem to want to, um, to budge. It just seems to want to continue to price in positive outcomes. I mean, the positive outcomes have been coming for the stock market for a while. What's got me interested more today is the bond market. We just showed that the 30-year long treasury bond is right at about 2% yields right now. For context, that's kind of what it was pre-pandemic, which means that that whole idea of asset reflation, of growth and inflation coming back, is all now pricing into the bond market as well. Doesn't that suggest that there's more runway if the bond market is just now catching up to the reflation that stocks have had for quite some time? Well, yes, although it could also be that the bond market is also pricing in some inflation. We've seen some tremendous stimulus and we're expecting even more stimulus. And that continued, you know, surge in debt uh, will have well could come with inflation. Um, if you look, for example, at tips, Dom, tips have actually been a spectacular performer over this past year. They got incredibly cheap. Uh, during the pandemic, during the March lows of the pandemic. And now I would argue that they're quite expensive. But you have to ask the question, are we really going to see inflation trending above 2%? That's where break-even yields are. And if that were the case, we'd see the Fed backing off sooner rather than later. And that I'm not sure we're going to see. Should we fear 2% inflation? It, it feels as though 2% should be kind of normal, right? I, I, it's not like the, it, it's hyperinflationary at all right now. There are no signs it's going to get that way. What about the case being made by some investors that, you know what, 2% inflation is kind of where we should be, not even pricing in hypergrowth? Well, see, that's the problem, is that 2% inflation is where we should be, but we haven't been there in a very long time. We've seen a tremendous amount of debt growth, um, but that excess money, that money supply that we've been printing hasn't actually gone into wages and goods and services pricing. It's been going in to the asset markets. And in fact, asset prices are tremendously inflated from a decade of continued stimulus, not just this latest stimulus. And that's really kind of the, the thing that kind of, I think in the longer term has me questioning whether or not we see value here. And Don, there's so much evidence uh, in terms of, of, of excess exuberance um, and excess money. That money is going into things like blank check companies. You mentioned SPACs. Um, you mentioned cryptocurrencies. These are literally um, instruments that are worth whatever someone is willing to pay you. There is no intrinsic value. IPOs are just through the roof. There is so much demand because there is so much excess money and so little value. All right. Gina Sanchez at Chantico Global spinning a cautionary tale for investors out there. Thank you very much. We appreciate it. Thank you. Now to Washington, D.C. Congress has a very busy week ahead. Today, Democrats begin work on, a, on the specifics of a new COVID relief bill that they hope to vote on in a couple of weeks. Tomorrow, the second impeachment trial for former President Donald Trump begins. Senators will hear opening statements from House impeachment managers and the Trump defense team as well. NBC's Tracy Potts joins us now with a complete roundup of what we need to be watching. Good morning, Tracy. 
Hi, Dom. Good morning. So the Senate will stay in town for this impeachment trial starting tomorrow. But interestingly, some House members are already leaving, leaving the details of this COVID relief bill to their leadership to hammer out between now and the week of February 22nd. Democrats are preparing to vote on COVID relief in two weeks, including stimulus payments. In an interview with CBS Evening News, President Biden said the payments will phase out based on income. It's somewhere between an individual making up to 75 and phasing out and a couple making up to 150 and phasing out. But again, I'm wide open on what that is. The president admits this bill will not raise the minimum wage, but Democrats are planning to add new child payments up to $3,600 paid monthly starting in July. Republicans argue the $1.9 trillion plan costs too much. Sometimes a cure is worse than a disease. Stimulus talks continue as the Senate prepares for the Trump impeachment trial to begin tomorrow. I think this is a very bad idea. Uh, 45 plus Republicans are going to vote early on that it's unconstitutional. A handful of Republicans say they'll be impartial jurors. I'm going to listen to the arguments on both sides and make the decision that I think is right. Those arguments may or may not include witnesses. There will already be over 100 witnesses present, uh, and those will be the House and Senate members. But getting 17 Republicans to convict still seems unlikely. Senate Democrats say they're going to leave the decision of witnesses up to the House managers, the prosecutors in this case. But, Dom, the managers haven't said yet whether they'd call witnesses. A full slate for Congress coming up this week. Tracy Potts live in D.C. Thank you very much. When we come back on the show, China formalizing some anti-monopoly rules targeting the Internet economy. And this could have big implications for Alibaba. We have a live report from Beijing coming up next. But first, as we head out to break, check out some of this morning's biggest movers in the S&P 500. Unum Group, General Motors, Cummins Engine, all up around 25 to 3%. On the losing side of things, you have Technic FMC, also Domino's Pizza and Air Products and Chemicals, down roughly 1% to 1.5%. Stay tuned. You are watching uh, Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Check out what's happening with Dogecoin this morning. As you can see there, up 150 percent. 
The cryptocurrency that started out as a joke soaring to another record high after Elon Musk, Snoop Dogg and Kisses Gene Simmons all tweeted about it. As you can see, Elon Musk saying, so it's finally come true. And he's put up a meme with regard to the Lion King elevating Dogecoin. And then we see Snoop Doge with the Dogecoin there. The Shiba Inu has become pretty ubiquitous these days in coverage in cryptocurrency. A far cry from what it used to be. We used to talk about Bitcoin quite a bit. By the way, Bitcoin pushing up against the 40,000 mark right now. To overseas news, China is formalizing anti-monopoly rules targeting the Internet economy, and investors are trying to figure out what this might mean for one of its most high-profile Internet companies, Alibaba. Eunice Yoon joins us now from Beijing with the latest there. Good morning. Good evening, Eunice. Good morning, Dom. So the market regulator unveiled these new guidelines over the weekend, and they're really aimed at big tech. So these new rules are based off of a draft that was unveiled in November, and they're meant to stop online giants from engaging in what the authorities here are calling anti-competitive behavior. So those would include some practices that have become quite commonplace within the industry. So forced exclusivity, uh, for example, that is uh, forcing a vendor to choose one only one uh, player uh, where they could sell all of their, their goods online versus the other, uh, subsidies for below-cost services, and, and also price manipulation. So based on what you see with your customer, who your customers are, you offer them a different price. So that now is no longer allowed. So um, obviously this um, had an impact in, in terms of how investors are looking now at Alibaba, Tencent, JD, even the food delivery app Meituan as well, a lot of uh, um, online giants. But if you could see, the stock price actually didn't move so much uh, for so, some of these companies because, one, the um, the bulk of the, um, the rules were unveiled in November, but also it's still unclear exactly what the impact is going to be. There's still a lot of things that need to still be defined within these regulations. But I think one thing, Dom, that is really interesting is that these new guidelines were rushed out in three months. So formalized in three months. And that is in China considered lightning speed when it comes to these anti-monopoly regulations. Because the last time we saw something um, kind of a, kind of akin to this was with the car industry. And that was uh, several, several years ago. And it took them a very long time to be able to formalize anything. All right. So, so Eunice, uh, there, there's a, perhaps an argument there. I mean, you, we're noting the stock prices right now over the, the medium to longer term here. Is perhaps the reason here because it actually shows that China is doing stuff that is trying to solidify a freer market there. I mean, big technology is under a lot of scrutiny antitrust wise in the United States as well. And those stocks still keep going higher. So maybe this is just the next evolution of big Internet business in China. Yeah, well, that's the argument that I hear from people who say this is going to be a good thing now for the anti-IPO, that the IPO should be able to go ahead, that we will see the regulations kind of all sort them out. This is a very new industry. The market regulator even said that itself, saying that this is a, a relatively new industry. And so um, because of that, they need to be able to, to figure out all these these um, regulations to uh, root out all of the risk. So uh, those who think that Ant is still on the table for an IPO um, often see this as a positive move, at least longer term, to be able to get the industry in shape. All right, Eunice Yun live in Beijing with the latest on big tech in China here. Thank you very much. Still on deck for the show, Amazon facing a big union vote starting today. Those details coming up straight ahead. 
today's big number, 7.95 billion. That's how many times Snapchat's users opened the app each day during the fourth quarter. The company's daily active users jumped 22% over the prior year. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Let's get a check on this morning's other top headlines. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York with the latest. Good Monday morning, Francis. Hey, Dom. Good morning to you. Yes, Super Bowl Sunday was more like Super Bowl snow day in uh, some parts of the Northeast. The powerful nor'easter brought a fresh round of winter weather. The folks there are still trying to dig out from last week's massive snowstorm. D.C. saw a wintry mix of slushy snow and rain, while Buffalo, New York, had several of inches there. In Quincy, Massachusetts, the white stuff fell at three to four inches per hour. Former Secretary of State George Shultz has died, best known as Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan. He is credited with helping end the Cold War. He was one of the most consequential policymakers of our time, holding four different cabinet-level positions throughout his long career. George Shultz was 100 years old. Students in San Francisco and Chicago may soon be headed back to the classroom. Both school districts have reportedly struck tentative deals with the teachers' unions. In Chicago, pre-K and special education programs would return Thursday. Other groups would be staggered, and no return date has been set for high schoolers. Meanwhile, the San Francisco Chronicle is reporting that a tentative agreement would allow reopening depending on the city's tier position and if COVID vaccines are available to teachers and staff. A lot of debate going on in those districts to get those teachers and kids back to school. Dom, those are your headlines for this Monday morning. Such a critical part to that mix about mm-hmm. opening up the economy there. Francis Rivera, thank you very much for that. Coming up on the show, futures pointing towards a higher open at the opening bell. We'll talk about this week's big earnings and events to watch, including stimulus negotiations, those earning reports, and so much more. But first, February is Black History Month, and we are honoring some of our CNBC contributors. As we go to break, here is CNBC contributor Bono and Eisen with his advice for the next generation. The next generation of leaders, business leaders, politicians, etc., are on the other side of the camera. They're not sitting here. They're not me. They're not my peers. I want you all to adopt a mindset that you have limitless possibilities. And while I understand that you may not have all the luxuries at your disposal, opportunity met with tireless effort will lead to results. And I look forward to watching the next generation imparting their knowledge on you. Good morning. The Bulls looking to build on Wall Street's best week since November. Hyundai and Kia say that they are not in talks with Apple to develop a car. And Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers win the Super Bowl. But it's not just the Kansas City Chiefs feeling the pain. Why some major sports betting sites could also turn out to be the losers in the big game last night. It's Monday, February 8th, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back. I am Dominic Chu in for Brian Sullivan this morning. Let's get right to the markets right now. Futures pointing towards higher opening bells 
For the Dow, you can see implied higher by roughly about 100 points. The S&P would rise by just about 11 points and the Nasdaq up by just about 53. On the Treasury yield side of things, we're seeing a slight tick higher in yields as well. The 10-year benchmark note yield 1.19%, so that's notable there. But even more notable, perhaps, is the 30-year long Treasury bond. You can see there 1.99%. It did briefly tick above 2%. It would be the first time since February of last year, pre-COVID pandemic economic lockdowns. And oil prices also in focus as well, part of that reflation trade. Oil prices and gasoline as well heading higher over the course of the last several months. Right now, WTI crude up over 1%. $57.48 the last trade there. World benchmark Brent crude ice, ice Brent crude futures, $60, the figure, 1% upside there as well. Making headlines this morning, Hyundai and Kia say that they are not in talks with Apple to develop a car. The company is making the comments in a regulatory filing today following media reports that the U.S. tech giant was looking to the South Korean automakers to develop a self-driving car. Hyundai and Kia both say they're getting requests from multiple companies to work on autonomous electric vehicles, but nothing's been decided. Both stocks you can see there in Korean trading, trading sharply lower. Hyundai down 6% and Kia down about 15%. South Africa will stop the use of the AstraZeneca Oxford COVID vaccine. The decision comes after research showed the immunization wasn't effective in preventing illness caused by a new variant of the virus first seen in that country, South Africa. And Amazon warehouse workers in Alabama will begin a historic vote today to unionize. On Friday, the National Labor Relations Board, the NLRB, rejected Amazon's attempt to delay that vote, which included a motion to demand votes take place in person. Now, mail-in voting will continue as planned and decide whether the Alabama warehouse, which has around 6,000 workers, will join a unit of the AFL-CIO. It could also spur similar efforts at the more than 100 Amazon fulfillment centers all around this country. Well, back to the markets. Let's check out some of these so-called Reddit short squeeze stocks this morning. You can see GameStop up 10 percent, seventy dollars and 15 cents. The last trade there, AMC Entertainment, roughly about seven dollars right now, up one percent. Cost, Nokia and BlackBerry all mixed in the trading pre-market so far. Joining me now is Babelfish Analytics founding partner Jeff Alexander to talk a little bit more about this. And Jeff I'm curious about this because the Reddit revolution, Wall Street bets, what's happened with GameStop, AMC, Cost, and all these other stocks was billed as a win, a huge one for the retail investor out there. Is it, in fact, a win for those retail investors out there? Thank you for having me on. The first thing is the definition of retail is, well, we use the wrong definition. My clients are hedge funds, they're mutual funds, they're some of the largest in the world. And what they do is they represent people who have pensions, for example, uh, policemen, firemen, pipe fitters. And that's retail, right? All it is is it's retail and it's packaged up. Now, what happened here was when all this new flow came into the market, what's really, really interesting when you look at the numbers, I don't think anybody's been talking about this, is the Reddit revolution, the Robin Hood, the Schwab. At this time last year, it was under 20% of market volume. Now, it's over one third of all market volume. And what's, what happens here, there's something called payment for order flow. So when someone executes a trade through a, through a Robinhood or through a Schwab, it doesn't go to the New York Stock Exchange. It doesn't go to NASDAQ. What it does is it goes to a Citadel, it goes to a Virtu. And what they do, they're known as wholesalers, they execute it. And that never reaches the marketplace. It never hits an exchange. So think about this. One third 
of all the trading volume never gets to an exchange. And what that means is my clients, the hedge funds, the mutual funds that represent the pensions, never have the opportunity to trade with that flow. And what we've seen is an uh, increase in costs unlike anything we've ever seen in the 25 years we've been doing transaction cost analysis. Costs in high retail names have tripled. So, 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 Jeff, 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 so so, so let's boil this down. You're saying that what's been happening with the surge in retail trading volumes at places like Robinhood, at places like Webull, at places like even Schwab or or, or E-Trade or anywhere else have now increased costs for investors who invest in mutual funds and other instruments like that. Absolutely. In high retail names, the costs have increased and the deviation of costs, how, how much those costs vary, by a factor of three. That's a significant cost. And when we say high retail names, people think, oh, okay, well, he means GameStop, he means AMC. No, I mean GameStop, I mean AMC, but I mean Apple, I mean Boeing, I mean American Airlines, Tesla, Royal Caribbean. Overall, it's one third of all volume. And, and why is that a problem? And let me tell you why that's a problem. When a mutual fund decides to buy a stock, a lot of times the the direction will come down and they'll say, be 20% of the volume. So a trader is going to go in, they're going to try to be 20% of the volume. But what if you don't have access to 40% of that volume because it's being executed by Citadel and Virtu? Well, then the trader has to be 33% of the remaining volume. And if you go back and you remember when you were an econ student in college, Right. Less supply, same demand, higher prices. And that's why we found that the cost increased by a factor of three in those names. So, so Jeff, with that in mind, if, we, if, if, you're, if your data is coming through the way it is and you're saying that costs for actually transacting things for mutual fund managers who are investing money on behalf of retail individual investors, perhaps hedge funds doing work for pension funds and, and, and that sort of thing, what exactly does, does that mean then for the future of the business should we just accept that, that that trading costs will be higher down the line? Should something happen from the regulatory standpoint to kind of improve that trading execution for those people who are invested, not in day trading, but in things like mutual funds, index funds, and that sort of thing? I'm never a fan of regulatory solutions. Regulatory solutions take a long time to implement, and they usually have horrific side effects. I'm always a fan of, taking an, of doing private solutions. Right now, portfolio managers... And traders have to be aware of the situation. They have to track that they have to track high retail names. And what what the way that market data works, it's really, really hard to calculate this. We've spent over the past year coming up with accurate numbers for retail in each name. So you have to know that these names are high retail names. You have to plan accordingly. You have to assess the risk in your portfolio and say, I cannot have a portfolio that's all high risk names. Longer term, there's going to have to be a commercial solution that comes along, perhaps something that sits between the Schwabs, and the wholesalers that allows institutions to have fair access. All right. Jeff Alexander with the latest there on how transaction costs are rising for many institutional clients because of the surge in retail trading. Thank you very much. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you so much, Anna. All right. Coming up on the show, highlights from last night's Super Bowl, plus some big problems for sports betting sites. We'll bring you the details of what happened there. But first, as we head out to break, some of your other top headlines this morning. 
alphabet-backed health insurance startup Oscar Health is filing for an IPO, a real IPO. The company helps with everything from scheduling doctor's visits to checking lab results. The Financial Times is reporting TikTok is planning an aggressive expansion into e-commerce in the U.S., stepping up its competition with Facebook. The Chinese-owned app has briefed advertisers on some new features, including a tool that lets its most popular users share links to products and then automatically earn a commission on any sales made through those channels. And gas prices jumping five cents a gallon over the past two weeks to an average of $2.50 a gallon for regular unleaded. I know, I pay those prices as well. Stay tuned, you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Well, last night's Super Bowl was expected to be a record-breaking year for online sports betting in the U.S., but something broke. Multiple gaming platforms had multiple crashes. Contessa Brewer joins us now with the latest there. What happened, Contessa? I saw statements from companies like FanDuel saying that they were experiencing outages. Was it all driven because of the surge in betting demand? Well, I mean, that's part of it, Dom. But look, even before the game started, you had furious bettors taking to social media to complain about online and mobile crashes. And there was a lot of swearing. One tweeter wrote, how is it that I'm seeing Fandle commercials on my television, almost rubbing it in that I can't even place a bet on your app that crashes anytime there's a reasonably large sporting event? I'm told Fandle's outages were intermittent because demand exceeded expectations with the biggest problems in Michigan, where they love sports and sports betting just launched last month. In Nevada, it wasn't just the bet MGM app. It was also MGM's retail sports books. MGM couldn't take bets through the game. They couldn't settle immediately afterwards. MGM tells me now it settled bets on its apps, but they were still working actively to try and close out tickets at closing time in the sports book. Barstool got complaints over its app crashes. Penn National Gaming blames third-party tech issues, and though it didn't point the finger specifically at Camby, DraftKings did. Camby's a global gaming tech provider. I've reached out to them for some insight. But in the meantime, DraftKings says it appears this outage was caused by a surge in traffic that caused problems for our back-end provider. Our DFS, Daily Fantasy Sports, and Pools products, supported by in-house technology, are functioning without issue. This incident is why we believe owning our own technology is important. DraftKings announced last summer it would terminate its deal with Canby by this coming September. DraftKings went as far as crediting customers they thought were affected, gave them 20 bucks. William Hill, PointsBet, and others say their operations were totally smooth and said globally, record demand for online wagers, Dom, was expected. I mean, it was certainly expected because the the marketing that went into this, I saw so many commercials for DraftKings and FanDuel and everything else. I don't yet have an account, but I was tempted to take advantage of that 55 to 1 odds they were giving on $5 bets for the Chiefs or the, you know, or, or the Bucks. What does all this mean then? What are the implications for these platforms? Will they be able to scale or is this kind of like an event that's just a one off? We don't get Super Bowls every day. Now they can adjust and everything's going to be fine down the line. Look, they were having tech meetings late up until the game to try and make sure everything was ready to go and would operate smoothly. They expected this rush of demand. So there's going to be, I'm sure, internally heads rolling at each of these organizations. The real question here is, what happens to 
their customers. Remember, a lot of these companies spend a lot of money on customer acquisition. And so if you bring them in and then your app is unreliable, you infuriate your your customers. And uh, PaySafe just recently did a survey that showed there's not a lot of brand loyalty here. The customers go where they'll get um, uh, uh, bonuses and, and sort of promotional payoffs and where it's easy to cash in and out. And if you can't do that, you're going to ruin your relationship with them. So it, it's question, I, I'm questioning what they spent on these ads and what they are going to lose in terms of customer confidence in their product. I mean, you can lose customer confidence in product, Contessa, but we're also talking about only a handful of apps that are really driving a lot of the action here. You mentioned the Barstool partnership with Penn Gaming, BetMGM. You've got another one in terms of FanDuel and DraftKings. There's only a handful of players out there doing this. Do consumers really have a choice when it comes to dealing with this kind of thing? There's actually there's a slew of opportunities for them to pick and choose. It's just that there's um, right now there's some very big names, but there's some other smaller names that are trying to make a name. I mentioned PointsBet. They have the partnership with NBC Sports. They're intent on making a run for it. Bally's is uh, formerly Twin Rivers. They're planning to make a run and give these guys um, some competition. Win Resorts has just gotten into this and now already is live in three states and has market access in eight or nine. So we'll see what happens as these guys try to elbow out. But you would think the FanDuel, DraftKings, Penn, Bar- Bar- Penn has just spent a fortune and a lot of time trying to make this Barstool app easy and intuitive and, uh, and available in Pennsylvania and Michigan. And so to find complaints about it this early on, you know, I, I'm sure that they thought the kinks were already worked out. All right, Contessa Brewer with the latest there on some of the betting mishaps ahead of that big game. Thank you very much, Contessa. Well, Tom Brady is going to run out of fingers to wear all his championship rings. Brady leading the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, as you just heard, to the Super Bowl victory in 55, beating the Kansas City Chiefs 38-9, to Brady winning his seventh title and his fifth Super Bowl MVP award, and he's not even done yet. Brady already saying he's coming back to try to do it all over again. I'm sure Tampa Bay fans are really happy about that. For more on what we saw last night and the other big sidebar activities surrounding the Super Bowl, including the betting we just talked about, let's bring in Jabari Young, sports business reporter for CNBC.com. Jabari, I cannot believe the Chiefs couldn't even score a touchdown. What stood out to you about the game? Well, Don, first of all, good morning. I hope you enjoyed the game. Uh, and, and what stood out to me was uh, the two black coordinators and Byron Leftwich and, and Todd Bowles. Temple guy, may I say, Temple TU representing in the Super Bowl last night. Uh, But, you know, listen, those two guys really outdid themselves. They stopped Patrick Mahomes. They stopped Tariq Hill. They stopped the Super Bowl defending champions, former the Super Bowl defending champions now in in the Chiefs. I thought Todd Bowles' plan, you know, to stay back and and beat those guys up front was just brilliant. Byron Leftwich called a great game. Uh, and, And, you know, listen, you can't. You cannot go against Tom Brady. You know, I was telling my boss, Jeff McCracken, that when he was on Slack and talking, who we want to pick? I said, listen, you can't go against a guy like Tom Brady. You know, people are going to love Joe Montana. People are going to love all the great quarterbacks. I wasn't around to see a lot of them, but I was around. I am around to see Tom Brady. And I got to say, this guy's the gold. Now, I'm saying this, and Peyton Manning's my, my favorite quarterback of all time. But Tom Brady, you can't knock what he did. He took the Tampa Bay uh, Buccaneers the first year in, in that place to the Super Bowl, the first team to represent themselves uh, in the Raymond James Stadium at home, playing a home game at, for a Super Bowl, and he did it. And, and he did it, and he beat out Bill Belichick. I'm sure he loved that. Rob Gronkowski. It was a great game last night for me from, from a competitive standpoint. 
and watching, you know, Brady and Mahomes go at it. You know, you're looking at past and present, right? Uh, Mahomes is the future king, but in, until he wants that, until he gets that crown from Tom Brady, right now he's just the prince. Tom Brady's still the king as long as he's playing. So, Jabari, you know, I grew up, uh, I grew up in the Niners era back in the 80s and early 90s when they were huge. And, and of course, I'm a Joe Montana and Jerry Rice yeah. fan. We, we saw Tom Brady and Rob Gronkowski break the all-time postseason record for QB receiver touchdown receptions how big of a deal is it that the fact that tom brady can reunite with rob gronkowski two former patriots now doing it together and winning a championship in tampa bay i mean listen that was a fun story and certainly a part of it you know gronkowski hitting uh you know for two touchdowns antonio brown after everything that that man's went through even making his presence felt in the super bowl and again i just thought it was a competitive nobody expected don though we were talking on friday we didn't expect that the Bucks will beat the Chiefs by this much. I had at least like a three to four point game. But, you know, all around, it was just great. I mean, and, and you know, Brady just displayed his greatness, whether it's connected with Gronkowski, whether it's connected with Mike Evans, whether it's connected with any of his receivers out there. You know, it was a reason why he's crowned MVP. The man just continues to do it time and time again on the biggest stage of the NFL, and that's the Super Bowl. I mean, listen, seven, five MVPs, what more can you say about that? And I know, Dom, you're a Joe Montana guy, maybe, and I know a lot of people are Joe Montana guys. A lot of people are, are, are Dan Moreno, Brett Favre, all the greats. But you cannot, you cannot put Tom Brady underneath any of those guys. I think he's number one. And again, Peyton's my favorite quarterback. Uh, but it was just good to see that last night, to see somebody of that age do that at the highest of levels. I mean, you don't see that very much in sports, uh, especially a 40-plus-year-old guy. Tom Brady, as the greatest of all time, used to be an opinion. It's becoming more fact with the numbers starting to back it up now, Jabari. Yeah. I also want to uh, bring up Sarah Thomas, Lori Locust, Maral Javadafar, the three ladies who made a big impact on the Super Bowl last night, Sarah Thomas, again, trying to officiate a game. She did for the first time ever as a female official. The other two as yeah. assistant coaches for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and winning a championship. How big of a deal was that for gender equality in sports? You know, it's a very big deal. Anytime that you see female involvement in male-dominated sports, I mean, it's just always good. I have a seven-year-old daughter, and though she doesn't necessarily like football that much, when she gets to look at the screen and she, you know, she's seeing her dad watching football and she sees a girl in that screen, she gets to point them out and says, dad, who's that? And I think that that starts the conversation uh, of getting younger, younger females involved in, in football in any sport. You know, I think, you know, obviously we could talk about Tom Brady all day, right? We could talk about the fact that the Super Bowl was first in history of uh, being the way, way it is because of the pandemic, only a certain amount of people there, the mask all over the place. And I hope that, you know, once it's all said and done, that those, th those things that you mentioned, those three females that you mentioned, I hope that doesn't go under the radar because that was a big moment, especially for Sarah uh, Thomas last night for the NFL. Uh, to see that female representation on the highest stage of the NFL, and that's the Super Bowl. So it was great to see for me. As the father of a daughter, I couldn't agree more. Jabari Young, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Take care, Don. Coming up on the show, DoorDash helping SoftBank turn in an $11 billion quarterly profit. Those details coming up next. And if you have not already done so, subscribe to our new podcast, Worldwide Exchange, every day in audio format. If you miss us live here on air at 5 a.m. Eastern time, check us out on Apple or Spotify, whatever the podcast app you choose. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. In corporate news, SoftBank is reporting an $11 billion profit in its latest quarter, helped by big investment gains at its vision fund. That's a positive change from last year when big misses such as WeWork hurt the fund. Among the drivers in the latest quarter were investments it had in Uber and DoorDash. SoftBank shares up 4.5% in Japan trading. 
Joining us now is Joel Shulman, founder and managing director of Entrepreneur Shares. Joel, SoftBank is just part of the story. It's, it's really just technology in general. Why is it such a dominant theme and why has it been outperforming so much and will it continue? Well, technology has been very strong. We've had a disruption in the marketplace, you know, beginning with the COVID last year. And we see the big players that have benefited, um, you know, last year in 2020 with, the, you know, many of the largest caps benefiting. But we're now seeing smaller companies perform well. <clears throat> last week, uh, our small caps are up 11 percent, driven by a couple of tech. But we're also seeing a lot of strength in international stocks, particularly in China, where Hong Kong has really benefited. And, and, and actually, seven out of our 10 top picks are, are, um, are based over in Hong Kong. So we're seeing technology, but healthcare, particularly small cap and genomics, very strong in the last um, probably six months, nine months. Can we expect that capitalization story to continue? And by that, I mean that small cap stocks and mid cap stocks continue to have the relative momentum edge over those large cap stocks that performed so well last year. I look at the Russell 2000 small caps over the last three months, and it's even blowing away some measures that we tend to watch all the time as bullish, like the Nasdaq. Yeah, you're right. Uh, in fact, we're up 20% year to date in small caps, 21% global. We've got to remember the small caps have been outperformed by large caps over the last five years. Last five years, large caps have outperformed small caps by 60%. So 60%. So if we only focus the last three months, we've got to remember this story goes much further back. Small caps have a lot of room to catch up. They, they um, had a, a you know, tough year early on last year, but they caught up, as you mentioned, the last three months. We see it last week. They had a very strong period. We see this running for a long period of time. So we see two areas of strength, small cap U.S., international, particularly Asia, you know, from a global standpoint. Now, you mentioned that, that that Asian story, the international story as well. We're hearing a lot more chatter from investors, investment professionals, strategists that say that there is better value to be found outside the U.S. Is that right. your case right now? And if so, where do investors go for that? Yeah, so 100 percent, the valuations are better. We've got to remember that mainland China now is going into Hong Kong. There's a 36% premium in mainland China. U.S. investors, in fact, 40 billion of the 60 billion year to date is going into uh, international, primarily Asian markets in, in China. Um, the, the PEs in, in Hong Kong are, are 12 to 14. In U.S., it's 23. So there's a 50% reduction going from U.S. to Hong Kong. If you look at tech, tech is 68 PE. So appreciably lower discounts. And we've also got to remember that with regulatory issues now allowing money to flow easily from mainland China, also from the U.S. going into um, there's encouragement because the ADRs um, have been uh, beat up a little bit because there's concern about um, securities being delisted off the major exchanges. So investors are now going directly into the markets. So we see Hong Kong being a great place. There are companies like Ehang up over 250% year to date. Futu, a fintech company, which is benefiting one of the strongest growth stories in the world. We track 55,000 companies. You know, this one is top 20 in the world. Um, multiples of returns in terms of revenues going up five, six times in the last three years. So we see great growth stories here. And last week, of course, we saw an IPO pop 300% the first day, biggest IPO ever in Hong Kong. All right. Joel Shulman at Entrepreneur Shares. Thank you very much. Have a great day, sir. Thank you. Uh, have a good day, too. Thanks. All right. Thank you very much. Let's check out what's happening with futures right now, because they are implying a roughly 100 point gain for the Dow at the opening bell. The S&P higher by roughly eight to nine points. That does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box picks up the market coverage on this Super Bowl Monday coming up next. 
You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.